Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. We'll be looking at initiation today from a psychological perspective. My guest is Andy Hilton, who is the author of Anthropology and Mysticism in the Making of Initiation. He also edited an anthology called Perspectives on Commoning. Welcome, Andy. Hello, welcome. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to be with you. Likewise. To my knowledge, most psychologists don't address the topic at, at all. Mm. But if we were to look at a, a psychological theorist who has something to say about initiation, wouldn't it be Carl Jung? It would indeed. It would indeed. Uh, backtracking uh, a little, uh, we, we spoke in the first interview about how I was establishing this field of initiation studies as a as a as a as a subdiscipline or a discipline and part of it uh, involves usage of the term initiation uh, that's in anthropology and in the mystical spiritual tradition but part of it as i understand the subject the word initiation isn't used, so I, I refer to this as the the covert uh, the covert approaches to initiation, and basically psychology is is is, is a, it comes under that category because the word isn't used. Of course, in the case of Carl Jung, he didn't use the word initiation because he used the word individuation, which basically means initiation, uh, but it's a scientized terminology in order to bring forth the self. Uh, one can talk about this distinction between the two, but yeah, Carl Jung was definitely talking about initiation from my, as I would understand it, and he was himself uh, initiate, an initiate. He went through his own initiation, so. Would you say that he initiated himself? Yes. Although he does talk about uh, active imagination and, and coming into contact with what I have to call a spirit guide he called Philemon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, the, the idea of active in imagination came from him. So yeah. he, he definitely initiated that, <laughs> that idea that he worked with. And he, I mean, he, he made his own path as he went along. And initiating oneself is to construct one's own path as you go along. Because if you're not following a path, you're making a path. So in a sense, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you also refer to the, I think it's the writings of Gail Shee, who wrote a, a oh, best-selling yes. mm -hmm. popular book called mm -hmm. Passages. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. uh, of course, we discussed how anthropologists have used the term rites of passage, and mm. she kind of draws on that mm. in, in talking about stages of the human life cycle. Right. And in the field of depth psychology, we would refer primarily in this context to Carl Jung, of course. Course, but there's another field of psychology which is developmental studies and that's what you're referencing there with the idea of the life cycle and stages of life we can compartmentalize life and my idea is that we com we can com we can compartmentalize the stage of youth 
starting from adolescence going through to the 20s, maybe longer, and call that the stage of initiation. Uh, so we can break up life into different stages. And so in this framework, we have childhood, we have youth, which is initiation, we have adulthood, which is maturity, and we have something after that, which is older age and elderhood. And uh, different theorists break these stages up differently. Of course, of course. Carl Jung had adult start, adulthood starting at age 40. Of course, numbers like 40 are a little bit arbitrary, dependent on our decimal system of breaking up uh, 20s and 30s and 40s. Yeah. Uh, uh, a more mystical system, of course, would, would, would introduce numbers like, like 33 or uh, 29, uh, something like that. But you referred, for example, to the astrological notion of the Saturn return. Oh, well, yeah, that's primarily because that was my experience as I was going through my own initiation. Uh, I had a friend who asked me how old I was, and she said, oh, that's Saturn return, and gave me a book on Saturn return, or Saturn. Uh, so, so that coincided with me. Which is a 28 year cycle. Yeah, I think it's uh, technically I think it's 29 and a few few days. Yeah, yeah. I mean this little but that's the end of the 20s so that that takes us nicely through the teenage through the 20s. So mm -hmm. that that could be a paradigm period uh, until say age 30 is a paradigm period of of initiation. That's uh, an idea I had. It's only one paradigm. I mean you could have others. Uh-huh. Well, I thought it was interesting in a psychological sense. You had this profound experience in a shamanic workshop mm -hmm. in, in, around the age of 29. Right, right. I mean, uh, I actually had a three uh, shamanic workshops and each one had its own uh, experiences. Uh, mm -hmm. That was the, that was one of the most profound in the first one. Um, just continuing in that first one, I also saw um, what we might call ether. Um, hard to describe, but uh, it was like uh, I've seen a, a description recently: ribbons. So it's like ribbons of energy, and I'm seeing these ribbons of of energy, like a dark, smoky color. And I'm looking at the lights. Yeah, I'm seeing. Okay, there's the people. Yeah, I'm. I'm but I can see it. So I'm seeing energy, an energy form. It may be what was called ether in the old days. It may be what we call dark energy nowadays. I don't know what it was, but yeah. that's what I saw. But so you that was see one this in, in artwork sometimes, like the paintings of Van Gogh. Mm. Okay, okay, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, maybe we could <laughs> relate it to that specific <laughs> example. Uh, in the, in the second workshop, uh, I saw a, a, a vision, and that was a, a stone, uh, a grey stone cut in half with a, a layer of a thin circle of black, a thin circle of white, and then a big heart of red. Reading later, Campbell, what's his name? Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell, the Master of God. Creative Mythology, that's the fourth volume. From that, I understood that to be the Philosopher's Stone. And also, by looking down with the red circle, that's the chalice. So that makes it... Uh, I can't think of the... The Holy Grail legend. You've got it. So the mm -hmm. Holy Grail is the Philosopher's Stone. So I received those in that vision. Uh, 
And then in the last workshop, uh, we did a, a vision quest. And uh, in toward the end of the second day in the hills, we just go out to the hills and sleep there, and and be in 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 the wild. And and a tremendous peace came upon me. A wonderful, a wonderful peace. And I could see the energy. I could see the energy spiraling down. Uh, to a place I couldn't actually see, but I think there was water there, so I thought it was maybe kind of like an aquifer, so thinking about it, maybe some kind of electromagnetic, and also in the shamanic context, there's the idea of power points or power spots on the earth, so I thought, well, that's a power point, so then I thought, well, they're everywhere, these power spots, there's nothing that <laughs> sacred about them, uh, so that was another uh, mystical experience mm -hmm. in these in this series of workshops. Visionary. Uh, yeah, yeah, these were all visionary experiences. Um, there was a healing experience, uh, which of course goes nicely with shamanism. There was a nice, interesting experience after, after the first workshop. I, I, at one point I got home and I decided just to sit and I shut my eyes and there's this deer looking at me. Uh, and then, well, that was a surprise. So I shut my eyes again. And this time there's a frog looking at me <laughs> really strongly, very vivid. Uh, it wasn't a normal meditative experience. They just jumped out at me. And then a, a third time and the frog had become uh, a toad uh, or a brown colored. Uh, and then and then uh, to cut to, to the part I was coming to, there's some other things, so I'll put those aside. Uh, uh, I'm walking along the street a few days later in North London, and there's leaves, it's, I guess, it, there's leaves on the ground, and I, for some reason I pick up under a leaf, and there is a frog. Uh, and it is in a kind of a very frog shape. It's rigid. It's, it's not alive. Uh, so that would be like in the shamanic tradition, tradition of power animal. So if I had been living that tradition, I would have kind of pocketed it or, or eaten it or I just put it back. But it's, it was a, it was a manifestation. So that wasn't visionary. So some experiences were visionary. Some were synchronicity. Some were the physical manifestation of some kind. Yeah. Well, I guess it's fair to say in, in the terms of Abraham Maslow that mm -hmm. this sequence of events mm -hmm. that occurred for mm -hmm. you when about 29 years ago, when you were about 29, that uh, we could call it a peak experience. Yeah, I think, as I understand, he very much had that kind of thing in mind when he said peak experience. He wasn't thinking more generally of of the moment in sport when you're in the zone. He was thinking of this kind of thing, as I understand. And and you're right. You do rightly point out that it's. I'm now in double Saturn return to use that that framework, and I find myself in in a in a second phase, which is kind of interesting. I hadn't expected. It. I've come back to. To, to this world of mysticism and uh, the paranormal or psi or whatever we want to call it, spirituality also, of course. And 
uh, I find myself having experiences with uh, the UFO or UAP experiences, synchronicities coming up. Here I am. This is all part of it for me. And I'm calling this a regeneration. So I've had my initiation and now I'm having my regeneration. And, and in the interim, you really spent the past 30 years more or less writing your book, Anthropology and Mysticism in the Making of Initiation. Yeah, and also falling in love and getting married and having, having children and doing a job job and just being in regular life yeah but as a hobby on the quiet i've always had the, the initiation thing going on I initially I, I i researched helping a friend uh, with some work she was doing and uh, taking a, a feminist perspective on the work of robert Bly on male initiation and then i i got interested in the anthropology and researched that just as a hobby and i was living in brighton i used to go to the library there in oxford and the bodleian library that was wonderful and then i continued when i went to istanbul and uh, uh, the internet came and so I could research online. I had written everything by hand and I dumped it and I was finished and I was, I was good with it. It wasn't a problem because I, I knew what, I knew what I thought. And then a couple of years ago, uh, it came back to me to actually do this. So I to publish to write again from the beginning. I had the basic ideas, but I, I rewrote, you rewrote everything, everything. Book. I rewrote from zero and publishing. Yeah, I went for it and things fitted into place as sometimes they do. Well, let's talk about Robert Bly. He, uh -huh. he was a major cultural figure. He influenced you. Um, well, in, in terms of, in terms of, uh, giving me the idea of initiation and setting me off on that track entirely. In terms of male initiation, yeah, well, I liked, I liked what he was doing a lot, but I wouldn't call that influential particularly. Well, well, he was known to my way of uh -huh. understanding as the founder of what people called the men's movement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the men's movement was, was a, became a thing, was a thing, uh, response to to uh, to a response to feminism a post feminist masculine identity which i you know, i didn't really go with it to be honest uh, well, I, I, I was reticent about that let me just mention parenthetically uh -huh. for the benefit of our viewers the introduction to the new thinking aloud series uses the voice of uh, the now departed jerry jansen Okay. He he says, you know, thinking aloud with Jeffrey Mishlove. Okay. Doesn't even say new thinking aloud. <laughs> he was a leader in the men's movement. He was inspired by Robert Bly. Uh, so every introduction to every single program wow, on I didn't this know that. series okay, in, yeah. includes the voice of, uh, he had a magnificent mm. radio voice. Mm. He, he appeared on KGO in San Francisco. Mm. He had a weekly radio program focusing in on the men's movement. Mm. And he was a good friend of mine. Hmm. Uh, back in those years and uh, he pointed out for example how men die earlier than women women live longer than men and he began right. asking why what, what's going on there yeah did he get an answer to yes, that question yes well he felt that the, the lifestyle of being a male huh. was, was more stressful 
And okay. He thought that had a lot to do with it, and、uh-huh. and he began looking at the psychology of men. Right. And,、uh, yeah. I mean, I don't want to go into it now because we're、uh-huh. here to interview you. But I <laughs> I did want to mention that parenthetically that in the background, just that voice of、uh, Jerry, who died years ago,、mm. is is a, a reminder to me of of the power that the men's movement had in its day, and I still regard it as very very significant. I yeah, consider yeah. myself a feminist, but I think the men's movement is is very important. Well, I don't think the men's movement is worth talking about unless you start from feminism, and it's got to be post-feminism. Otherwise, it's it's retrogressive,、uh-huh. uh, and it's still continuing. In in Britain, they're doing work in prisons with men. It's 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 a good thing. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, entirely.、Uh, and the the. The, the 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 sociological thesis of 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 from the masculine point of view of of the、uh, the crisis of masculinity is is interesting and and has some has some bite has some relevance yeah for sure definitely、mm-hmm. so Robert Bly though introduced you to the notion of yeah. Initiation and, you,、mm-hmm. and Robert Bly maintained that this was something that、uh, evolved out of a masculine culture. You researched that and discovered it、mm. not to be the case. Yeah, yeah. His、uh, anthropology, anthropological base was、uh, not as good as it might have been. Uh, uh, historically, there has been an emphasis on male initiation, partly, of course, because. The early anthropologists and most anthropologists have been men doing science in the masculine domain. Yes, but more importantly, it seems that the male initiatory rituals that were observed by the the white man going to the to the south, shall we say?、Uh, Would have been of boys because they were done outside, whereas girls' initiations did tend to be inside, and so the girl would be kept inside the hut, for example, but typically and alone.、Uh, another reason for emphasising male initiation was the idea that. Female initiation was a natural event. You didn't need initiation. Women, girls became women naturally. They bled when when a when a woman first menstruates. That's her time to become a woman. So you don't need anything anything social to make、uh, a girl into a woman. But the research actually shows that not to be the case at all.、Uh, in fact. Uh, who, who I forget their names. Alice Shegel, Shegel, and. Barry the Third—I forget the names of the researchers—but but drilling down and and、uh, looking at the anthropolo- anthropological record using the statistical analyses that they had,、uh, it was found to be the converse that actually female initiation was more common than male initiation. Uh, so uh, we shouldn't focus initiation as a masculine thing, although it tends to be kind of taken that way somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a surprising finding for you.、Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a surprising finding coming from Robert Bly's emphasis on male initiation. Of course, yeah,、mm-hmm. of course. Well, Carl Jung,、um, when he talks about the 
individuation process, he often refers to the spiritual traditions of Gnosticism and, mm. and alchemy, the processes of al the alchemical marriage, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it seems that he's very clearly describing uh, individuation, at least in his own case, uh, in mystical terms. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm not a, a, a an expert on 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 Jung by by any means, uh, but he clearly deeply involved himself in that esoteric tradition. Uh, I think he probably struggled, trod a fine line between staying mentally sane and healthy in in an external environment and tipping over a little bit too far i think he probably walked a very fine line uh, uh he, he 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 said himself that nietzsche failed because he didn't have a family around him to keep him sane and keep him stable and and jung was jung was okay because he had that social setting to, to hold him uh, and enable him to go into the esoteric and, uh, and, and identify and, and work with the, the various techniques that he developed and uh, he had that to hold him and continue through. Yeah, he just seemed to have had a, a very esoteric aspect to his own uh, initiatory process. Uh, and Perhaps he used the word individuation specifically not to refer to <laughs> to the esoteric. But you know what you're suggesting here mm -hmm. by reference to Nietzsche, mm -hmm. who by many accounts went insane at yeah, the, at the right. end of his life, and mm -hmm. Jung, who by many accounts uh, went right up to the edge and came back. Right. Uh, you're talking about some of the dangers involved, the psychological danger of fully becoming yourself. Well, that's interesting. The psychological danger of fully becoming yourself entirely. Yeah. So I can relate that in a couple of ways. Uh, uh, shall I say that in my own initiation, the one of the first events was a dream in which there was a giant bee, a really large bee. And for some reason, I crawled right under it and it was very dangerous and that can certainly be taken as symbolic of uh of 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 the risk uh the the symbol of the bee is also interesting and there's much more to say about that but just staying with this uh at that time in my, in my experience i was working with uh, schizophrenics and and uh i was trying to understand schizophrenia and and the aspect of the paranormal as an early experience in life causing dissociation of, of like ego, uh, the inability to handle that kind of experience. Uh, so an early initiation, if you want, because we're, I'm talking about initiation quintessentially in, in the, in the adolescent twenties period of the youth. But that's only one, 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 pattern of spiritual development involving paranormal that, that we can observe. Another one is the person who has it through their life. They can remember experiences very young and they don't have this special kind of initiation at 20, 28 or whatever mine was. They, they, they can remember when they were, when they were four years old, seven years old. Maybe they, they claim womb experiences. It's been all through their lives. Uh, so that's another kind of uh, experience in which 
danger comes in a different form, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Well, in the shamanic tradition, there is the notion of uh, the initiatory illness yeah. that, mm-hmm. that one becomes sick, sometimes to nearly to the point of death, mm-hmm. and and one has a choice: you either heal yourself and thereby become a shaman, or mm-hmm. or you die. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, and that also links to the to to the rites of passage idea. So this is the separation, and now we're in the liminal phase, and the liminal phase is the phase of death. Well, in one sense, it's the the death from the social world, but another and in another sense, it can be very much physically paid out. Uh, yeah, and in. If we apply the idea of initiation less mystically, but just to regular life, we can say, or we can interpret anybody's life, anybody can review their life in in an initiatory way. So we put that as a perspective on the life development. So, yeah, it may be literally when somebody was knocked over by a car, that was a, that was a point of, of, of initiation for them in their, in their, whatever it may be. It could be many things. It can be the end of a relationship. It can be when the business crashes, when they lose their job or when things, everything goes wrong. That can be that, that, that death time mm-hmm. that's in their initiatory story if they want to read their lives in that way, if it makes sense to them, to, to the individual. Of course, it might, it might feel like too forced, in which case, you know, don't bother. But, I always find it interesting when I notice that it fits. <laughs> well, you know, I thought it was fascinating that in your book you refer to uh, at least one novel, The Kite Runner, oh, yeah. as an initiatory story. And it, yeah, it yeah. dawned on me that novels a- as a literary genre, really, mm-hmm. in, in the Western world at least, began in a, the 18th century, maybe some a little sooner. Uh, at just about the same time that anthropologists were beginning to uh-huh. explore the concept oh, wonderful. Yeah, of, yeah. of initiation. Mm-hmm. And pretty much every novel, uh, every good novel, is kind of an initi- initiatory story about, you know, the coming of age. of Yeah, yeah, coming of age, uh, rites of passage novels, and now we have rites of passage films. Uh, uh, certainly that the, the idea of the rites of passage novel as a genre was around in the 1940s. It's, it's been quite a while already. Uh, and, and then we could also say, I guess, that that uh, the the production of the novel is a rite of passage isn't it, for the author. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in effect, if you look at anybody's life, if they end up uh, going through a major transition, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, can be mm-hmm. thought of mm-hmm. as an initiation. And yeah, <clears throat> I know yeah, you use yeah. the example of yeah. of the kite runner, which is uh-huh. a story of, of a an Afghani. Yeah, a uh, person who goes yeah. through a horrible self-realization, uh, right. almost devastating, uh, where he he sees himself or comes to see himself as a moral failure mm-hmm. and has to recover from that, mm. and and does makes a recovery from uh, the the recognition of of one's own failings. Yeah, yeah, and another aspect of that story is the. Is that he migrates, and migration is an initiation, and uh, it's uh, from the from the home territory to the destination territory in classical migration. You go from one place to another place, and the in between place is the liminal phase. And I, I remember in, uh, in in my book, I, st- I just have a little quote at the beginning, which is the the name. Now, what's the? What's, I can't remember the group. It's from the Congo. 
and it's a phrase for people who are traveling and it means something like they're not living uh yeah any any traveling is a passage also mm -hmm. so migration comes into it too. yeah now you've been using the phrase liminal Mm -hmm. Liminality. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very important phrase uh, to anthropologists looking at initiation, but right. it has a real psychological meaning as well. Let's let's dig into that a little uh, more deeply. Uh -huh, uh -huh. What do you? How are you thinking of psychological? Well, you talk about it as, as sort of transitional, meaning mm -hmm. neither here nor there. Okay, that comes from Victor Turner, uh, who picked up on Arnold van Gennep's work. So van Gennep, who was Belgian, wrote in French. Le de Passage had the the three, the tripart structure, separation, liminality or marginality, marginal, or, and then incorporation, reincorporation, I say recorporation. So the liminal is the central phase, and that's what Victor Turner focused on uh, kind of naturally, because that's like the heart of initiation is, is the middle phase. Uh, how should we understand it? Uh, it, it involves uh, inversion of norms, so, so uh, it involves divestment of ego, an antisocial aspect, and then going another stage, an asocial aspect. Uh, psychologically, it, it involves the reduction, uh, declothing, denaming. Uh, therefore, everybody in that phase is equal, so they naturally come together because they're all equal. They got nothing, and that's a, a kind of a phase of like we could say in contemporary life, young people coming together at 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 a music event, and they feel as one. Uh, for example, or students, for example, ha have nothing. They're outside. They're neither one nor the other. There's many contexts that mm -hmm. we we could put that to. Yeah, I uh, remember when we discussed this a couple of days ago. It mm -hmm. reminded me of uh, a movie of Marie Antoinette who was mm -hmm. uh, an Austrian uh, princess who became a, the queen of France. And mm. she was brought in a retinue, a royal retinue, uh, in, in a carriage from Austria to France. And when they reached the border, the boundary, she, of course, as a princess, was dressed in her royal garb with her royal pets, and, and they stripped her naked. Right, right, right. That's and she had to give up her pets, her mm -hmm. clothing. On the border. At, right at the border. Right, okay. When they crossed into France, mm -hmm. she was given a whole new set of clothes, mm -hmm. new mm -hmm. pets. Mm -hmm. New name. New name, I mm -hmm. presume, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, renaming is, is part of initiation, uh, and... That's interesting. It just occurs to me that for for a for a a, a woman marrying, she takes on a new surname, <coughs> so that, that still carries on in that in that small little sense. Uh, mm -hmm. Typically, takes on a new surname. Uh, yeah, and, and that happened at the border, which was the the original metaphor for for Van Gennep was that when crossing the border, we are going through this space of of no man's land. Uh, and then he put that into the idea of society as, as a, as a building, as a house, and each stage of life is a, is a room. And when you go from one room to the other, you cross through the door, and the door has the limen, which is the, the door frame, the Latin for the door frame. So that's where liminal comes from. When one is crossing from one, room of the self or one position of the self in society into another room of the self uh, as one crosses one is going through the the, the in-between neither one nor the other uh, threshold 
I, I know there's a mystical text called the Cloud of Unknowing. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. A medieval mm -hmm. mystical text. Yeah. And it really suggests if you're going to enter into a, a new phase, you kind of have to give up. Uh -huh. You have to enter into a, a point at which you just don't know what's about to come. Right, and then that resonates very much with uh, the lack of ego and the uh, access to mysticism through loss of any attachment, which is, of course, a, a well-known Buddhist uh, approach to, mm -hmm. to mysticism, indeed, yeah, yeah. I mean, as I recall from reading your description of the shamanic workshops you attended mm -hmm. some mm -hmm. 29 years ago, when, when you first started, when you signed up for those workshops, you uh -huh. didn't really know quite what to expect. Oh, for sure. I had no idea what to expect. Uh, I had previously had my initiatory dream, which is also in Jung as a, an individuation dream, and that was interesting. Uh, which I, I consider the, the start point of the, the, the main part of my nine-month period. And, and in that, we started in a, in a house, we're in a party, so that's the social world. Uh, and then I go outside and there's a tree and the phone's ringing from the tree. So I call everybody, look at this, there's a telephone ringing from the tree. So that, for me, is the psi paranormal Mm. Uh, that that aspect of things, and then I became aware of something much more important happening over there. So I go over there, and and uh, it's a beautiful starry clear night, and and the ground opens up as a drawbridge up to the sky, and the sky begins to circulate, circle, and the stars come together into the shape uh, uh, that I have in, on the front of my book. That symbol, uh, the stars are moving like this, and that became my symbol of initiation and I analyzed it as a swastika. It's used in the two form for the I Ching. There's many resonances going on there. Mm -hmm. So one analysis I made of that experience is that that is possibly cosmic consciousness in the dream form. And then, in the shamanic workshop, I experienced cosmic consciousness in the trance form. Uh, so I could say I wasn't entirely surprised by everything that happened. You know, I knew something was happening. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew something was happening. Now, know. you've used the term cosmic consciousness. Uh -huh. as, as I recall, it was a, a psychiatrist, R.M. Buck, or Bucky, right. a uh -huh. Canadian psychiatrist yeah. who first introduced that term into the psychological literature. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, when, I, when I first experienced it, I had no idea what, what, what had just happened. It just blew my mind, but I didn't have any name for it. It, then I, I used the word enlightenment, and I thought, well, I've just been enlightened. That, so that's enlightenment? Really? I, well, okay. Uh, okay. That's, uh, but shouldn't I still be enlightened? I don't think I'm enlightened now. So enlightenment is an event. So can you be in life? Can it continue? And it took me many years before I, before I found somebody who had been in state, as she called it, for a month. Uh, so from that, uh, and she's living, and somebody I contacted and knew, which is 
better than reading about uh, the experiences uh, even of like Yogananda who, who, or somebody of great mystical spiritual value and renown still if they're distant kind of not kind of feeling too sure but if you're chatting to somebody mm -hmm. uh, through an e through a through a share group and 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 you can you can sense that that, that that we're talking about the same thing essentially then 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 I got to that and it took me still Oh, another 10 years uh, subscribing to the Journal of Consciousness Studies before I came across uh, somebody, uh, Alan, I can't remember his name, but he wrote, uh, co-wrote an article with Charles Tart, uh, and, and there I came across the term cosmic consciousness, which was, of course, already 100 years old. I just didn't know it. So I thought, ah, okay, that's a better name than enlightenment, uh, cosmic consciousness. Uh, now, I don't know whether I'd use consciousness the, the terminology is changing how term, would you define cosmic consciousness how would I define yeah, it in terms okay. of your own experience okay uh uh, well, you can characterize it in, in various ways. For example, I've already said in trance. Uh, so one can be, uh, in this cosmic consciousness or unitive, uh, consciousness. Or I like to, the term I like at the moment is, is using the idea of the holographic universe. So if we use the model of the holographic universe, then, then it's the coherent mind. Uh, that's quite a nice name. But, um, God also, of course, is a, is a more traditional name. The cosmic consciousness experience can be characterized in terms of the conscious state. So we can, one can be in the dream state, the trance state, the waking state, maybe the sleeping state, maybe the, the dead state. <laughs> uh, so that's one, one perspective. Another perspective, of course, is how long it lasts. Uh, classically in, in the, in the trance state, it's like the one I had. It's vumph. It's the diamond, uh, the diamond lightning. Uh, uh, it comes just like that. You're suddenly in it, and it lasts a couple of minutes, maybe. Um, uh, in my case, it's hard to say how long it actually lasts because I came down from it to OBE. So I was in the, con the cosmic consciousness for a period of of, uh, of normal time, whatever that was, and then I came down to OBE. Out of body. Yeah, out of body experience, and I was specifically I was flying over high, flying over the world, over South America. I was looking down at South America as luminous light and I could see the Amazon jungle the, well I, I just saw the green and I knew it was all going to go so from that I, I gained the prophecy of the end of the Amazon jungle and I've never had any particular hope for, for the Amazon jungle since then bearing in mind that Prophecies are tricky things. They may only be at one likely or possible future, not necessarily the future. Uh, I lost my trade. Well, it, it, it seems that <laughs> upon having this extraordinary experience, hard to put into words exactly. Oh, yeah, we're talking about, yeah, okay. So we talk about length of time. We can talk about level of consciousness. And we, talk, we can talk about, so these are like structural. We can talk about the content of the experience. I would say that primarily there are three elements in the trance experience. In the in the waking experience, we we need to add love 
beauty, something like that, that area. But in a trance where we're not living in the world, we, we don't have that. And people have asked me, what about love? And I said, no, sorry. <laughs> I'd like to, but no. Uh, uh, one is, one is the, the, there's still perspective. We don't, one doesn't lose self in the sense of there is still a perspective. So there's still self in that sense. Okay, there may not be ego in some uh, Freudian sense, but there's still self as a perspective. And so that perspective from the point of view of space expands out. So that it's, the point is here, but it expands out to all here. The, the, the here is, is, is entire. It's the, it's the cosmos. It's the whole. Similarly with time, it's right now, but now it expands out to all time. It's the eternal. So there's, there's the all space and there's the all time. So there's the, the spatio-temporal unity, the whole, and that's the unity of experience, but there's also the experience of light, which is radiance, it's light in, light, uh, light in, in, in the darkness, the dark is light, it's a radiance, uh, so the, the luminosity, the radiance, uh, the, the spatio-temporal whole as a direct apperception of the Kantian transcendental we could put in that term uh, that's that's the that's the contentful core to my mind of what we call in the cosmic consciousness experience and that's why I reject the idea that we can't talk about it we can't name it what was it for ineffable, ineffable. You know, I mean I think I've been reasonably verbose in describing it just now I don't think it was ineffable uh, I don't see there's anything that ineffable is qualitatively more ineffable than love which is qualitatively more ineffable than blue perhaps perhaps but you know that's just a that's actually a quantitative difference more than a qualitative well i think one of the keys uh, for me in understanding your narrative is is that after having had this experience you began to seek out a supportive community to help you to better understand it and to nurture it and sustain it hmm uh well not not no <laughs> I, I i sought out anybody or anything that would help me to understand it and i struggled uh, in those days we didn't have the internet so it was more difficult then uh it took me a long time to come to the name cosmic consciousness it's, it's it's helpful to name your experience if you can find a name to your experience it really does kind of give you something to grip onto otherwise it's it's, it's more difficult so naming was important and yeah i, I I take where you're coming from. I, I was reaching out. I was trying to connect, trying to find. So I was trying to find. I, I through the, the Journal of Consciousness Studies. The Journal of Consciousness Studies. Yeah. I went to the, the, the launch of it in, in Oxford. And so I subscribed for 10 years and kind of read everything, tried to understand everything in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was this one article which was on somebody's cosmic consciousness experience. That's where I got the name. It was co-authored by Charles Tart, through which I connected to Rhea White, mm -hmm. who I'm sure you can say, you knew Did you know oh, her? Yeah. Of course, these right. are all Charlie Tart was yeah, yeah. one of my faculty at Berkeley when I yeah. got my degree, and, and Raya White was a very prominent member of the parapsychological community. So, from the Rhine Institute, I believe. Uh, well, I think she was independent, but she, right. as I remember, she was the editor of the journal of the American Society for Psychical Research mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in those days, out of New York. Oh, okay, she, she, yeah, okay. she was based in New York. 
as uh, I recall. Uh-huh. A lovely uh-huh. person and co-authored a wonderful book with Michael Murphy on the psychic side of sports. Uh-huh. Okay, back to being in the zone. Yeah, I mean, it's lovely to be here and to, to talk to you. To, for, for me, this is all a mythology because uh, mm-hmm. you've got a, a few years ahead of me on that front. But yeah, yeah it's wonderful to hear this. And, and Rhea, I said Rhea, you say Rhea? Okay, Rhea, Rhea White. Rhea, yeah. Rhea, uh, so, she, so in the early days of the internet, she established EHE, which was, what was that standing Exceptional for? Human Experiences. And she emphasized the emotional aspect, which I really liked i thought mm-hmm. we've got to bring in the emotions because all this all this kind of like very sterile testing of psi abilities with zena cards and ah, yeah. statistics <laughs> that's not good no we've got to get involved in this this is a, is a feeling thing and they, those studies are going to kind of fail because they don't bring in the emotions i thought mm-hmm. it was quite lightly uh so they, they're set up on the scientific paradigm to fail <laughs> uh i don't think they do fail but um, no but they they, they experience have what's known as a decline effect. People do well initially and Mm. then over time they become boring. Which is uh, related directly to the emotions, and yeah. and and so she had this network. So we had yes. a, it was like a, a share. Uh, yeah. What do we call it now? A, a share group, uh, internet sharing. Yes. Well, we're going to talk about uh, your other work, the book uh, Perspectives of Commoning. Uh huh. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you want to bring that in here? <laughs> well, not no. We'll do a separate interview. Oh, okay. For uh-huh. benefit of our viewers, you're you're here in Albuquerque. You've uh-huh. come all the way from Istanbul. All the way to yeah. be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I greatly appreciate you making the trip, and uh, you, in addition to your work on initiation, you edited this magnificent volume on on a topic I had not heard of, but mm. which is very relevant to everything we're talking about: commoning. Right, and and it certainly includes sharing on the internet and 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 sharing groups. Yeah, uh, yeah, that is a form of commoning, a form of sharing, definitely. Uh, and and it was from that group that I contacted uh, Claudia, who had been in state for a for a month mm-hmm. and got that perspective. Yeah, yeah. So you yeah. you found people who could acknowledge uh, what you had been through. Hmm. Um. No, no, I didn't need that. I didn't need acknowledgement. Uh, I wanted, I wanted connection. Mm-hmm. I want, I wanted to m- connect with other people. That's for sure. I wanted some framing by the name. Uh, that's true. Uh, but I didn't need, uh, I didn't need, uh, I knew what I knew. Yeah. <laughs> there wasn't any so question about it. I didn't need other people for you that. You could acknowledge yourself. Yeah, exactly. Which is, a, in effect, yeah. a form of self-initiation. Yeah, and and in Jungian terms, it's it's a, it's the, the, the manifestation or the realization of the self, maybe with a capital S. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, Andy Hilton, once again, a delightful conversation. Uh, I uh, am so glad that you're here, and I want our viewers to check the listings because Mm. there is more to come. Oh, wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you, and thank you for being with us.